probably NATO HQ people wouldn't like to to put it this way, but um, NATO thinks uh, all of its partners are great, but I think some partners are greater than others. You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing on the latest developments in US news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Hello, I'm Mari Kirk, Director of Engagement and Impact at the USSC. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're recording on today. The University of Sydney is located on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and future. Um, and our guest today is actually joining us from overseas, and I'd like to extend um, my respects to the elders of the traditional owners of the land where she's joining us from today as well. So in today's episode, we are getting a briefing on NATO's Vilnius Summit from someone who was in the room when it happened. Dr. Garana Gergic is a senior lecturer in the Government and International Relations Department at the University of Sydney and is jointly appointed with the USSC. However, right now, she is in Europe and she just completed a semester-long sabbatical at the Hurdy Business School in Berlin, working on research that explores the various manifestations of European countries' growing interest and presence in the Indo-Pacific, including NATO. And in previous years, Garana worked with the NATO Defense College in Rome, and she was a research fellow there in 2021, and her teaching and research activities were funded by the NATO Public Diplomacy Division. So you might think it's interesting for NATO to bring over an expert from Australia, but this is a very strategic effort on their part and something we'll hear more about later. But at the summit this year, Ukraine was once again the main focus. Will they be given a timeline to enter NATO, and what sort of conditions do they need to meet? What is NATO going to do about Russia's invasion, which has brought war to the European continent. But in addition, China is a major focus of the joint communique, and even Australia gets a mention. So I'm keen to dive in, uh, but before I do, I just wanted to flag that at the end of this episode, we're going to get a by-the-numbers fact or stat from Garana about NATO or the Vilnius summit. Uh, do you have that sorted, Garana? Absolutely. Okay, great. I can't wait to hear it. Um, so I guess, can you just start by setting the scene for us a little bit. What was it like to be in the room? Well, um, it was a total buzz um, to be uh, one of the several thousand people who were both there for uh, the summit, uh, so the meeting of the heads of states, but also uh, for uh, the public forum, which I was part of um, at the expo in Vilnius. Um, but uh, obviously that buzz uh, of the Full, uh, completely packed uh, two days was followed by a huge kind of wave of exhaustion that I'm still recovering from, given that I've just flown in from Vilnius a day ago. Um, but uh, in all honesty, you know, it just uh, did feel very uh, important and, and uh, I would say slightly historic to be part of uh, the, the things that were happening because some important decisions were made that, uh, again, will have uh, quite a lot of reverberations into the years and decades to come. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Uh, you know, things like new revamped defense planning for NATO, a major overhaul uh, for the first time, actually, since the end of the Cold War. 
um, but also uh, now uh, these uh, stronger, much, much stronger commitments where I think uh, we are safely in the territory where uh, Ukrainian membership becomes a matter of when rather than uh, if, if anyone had any doubts about that. So, uh, as I said, uh, just a huge honor actually to, to have been extended an invitation uh, to be present there and also to uh, have the opportunity to uh, meet in person with a lot of the people that I've uh, worked with over the past uh, couple of years uh, with from with, within NATO, uh, some of whom, uh, you know, were, were far apart because of uh, the pandemics and, and all that, uh, and also a bunch of colleagues, um, scholars of NATO who are also present. Well, and thank you for um, making time for this in the middle of your hectic schedule. Um, a very, very busy week. Really appreciate it. Um, so I have to talk about Ukraine, um, and really we could probably spend this whole episode just on the one topic. And I debated, do we go that niche? Because there's so much to cover there. But going into the summit, um, Ukraine has really been pushing to progress on its request to join NATO, and they want a timeline for entry. Um, this did not happen. But the joint communique does state that, and I quote, the alliance will support Ukraine in making these reforms on its path towards future membership. We will be in a position to extend an invitation to Ukraine to join the alliance when allies agree and conditions are met, end quote. So could you please elaborate on what these conditions are and how either straightforward or complex they might be? Sure. So um, obviously we've uh, heard a lot from, you know, day one uh, of the summit when uh, President uh, Zelensky of uh, Ukraine uh, uh put out those statements calling this decision absurd once uh, the communique was out that uh, a Ukrainian government was really hoping for something that would be uh, much more stronger and and uh, determined in terms of the, the kind of temporality of the whole process. Um, but I would say that on the second day, it was very clear that uh, there were assurances both uh, from the commitments that were made by NATO or bilaterally uh, between uh, different allies in Ukraine or groups such as the G7 that also met uh, following the summit and uh, where uh, really Ukrainian government was assured that uh, this is not uh, uh, like the Bucharest summit of 2008, where uh, a lot of people have been saying, you know, there was also in that communique language on uh, Ukraine will become a member, right? But uh, obviously we are in 2023 and uh, years have passed, nothing has happened on that front. Um, what these conditions are, uh, and I think that they are uh, very reasonable in, in uh, the context of everything that's going on, um, they speak to two basic uh, things. One uh, is the fact that uh, obviously there is a war uh, going on in Ukraine and that obviously the alliance can't admit a country at war in the alliance because obviously uh, as a defense alliance that is strongly committed to its article 5 of collective defense it would, this would essentially implicate it into a direct war with Russia right so uh, there needs to be an absence of war uh, is number one or at least some sort of you know ceasefire or uh, conditions that actually wouldn't directly uh, uh, bring in NATO into direct conflict with Russia. And number two, uh, the, the kind of 
uh, emphasis on the fact that NATO is not only a military alliance, it is also a political alliance and that NATO membership comes with certain obligations beyond solely military capabilities of a country of its commitment to, you know, act and coordinate uh, along with other allies and that uh, obviously those political conditions pertain to things like rule of law, um, democratic uh, values, uh, commitment to, to um, liberty, uh, um, uh, individual freedoms and, and things like that that are all uh, contained within uh, the, the NATO uh, charter and that basically uh, Ukraine still has some uh, steps to to go to actually meet those and to undergo some serious political reforms on its path to a full democratic consolidation. And that's not to say that some steps haven't been already made and Ukraine is doing a great job considering that it's in the middle of a war. But there are um, among those allies that have been concerned about, you know, the quality of democracy overall, you know, uh, around the alliance and they also point out that admitting uh, any country uh, into uh, alliance further, uh, we would want to see um, some progress on that. And um, I would also say that this wasn't necessarily, you know, uh, a kind of um, a condition that came out of uh, blue. If anything, we've seen uh, that that NATO is an alliance actually has now foregone this option of having a membership action plan, which is basically a plan that is sequential, that talks uh, to some of these political criteria. So uh, Ukraine will not follow that. Uh, in that sense, actually, uh, there there might be an argument to make, actually, that uh, it has somewhat of an easier than way uh, rather than following the, the map, uh, as it were, uh, where, where other countries, for instance, in the Balkans or even before that from Central and Eastern or Southeastern Europe uh, had to to basically go through that whole journey in order to uh, fulfill their membership requirements or accession requirements. Yeah, and that's help, helpful context. So I guess aside from Article 5, some of the other um, conditions for entry, I guess at the summit, was there a strong consensus around these issues or was it something where there were maybe points of division between the different member countries um, on some of those other topics? Well, from um, all of the things that we've heard from both uh, the Secretary General Stoltenberg as well as the, the various uh, officials who were coming in and out and, and giving talks, um, they all wanted to stress that there is unity uh, within the alliance, even if there might be some disagreements that, you know, uh, uh, needed to be ironed out uh, to get to that place of unity. Um, so I don't know uh, how to kind of what to make of, of these, uh, some of these uh, sort of uh, rhetorical uh, acrobatics. But what I would say is that uh, this is nothing new. And, and we've known that there have been certain fault lines um, when it comes to um, to the issue of Ukrainian membership. And if you want to kind of put it very crudely, uh, we know that um, Central and Eastern European uh, countries and specifically the Baltic states, Lithuania, obviously as a host, one of them, um, but joined together uh, with its uh, neighbors in Estonia, Latvia, Poland, right? They are some of the strongest voices in support of Ukrainian membership in NATO. At the same time, 
uh, Western Europeans, but also the United States have been more on the side uh, of the so-called conditionality, right, of basically uh, putting uh, some of these conditions um, in order for Ukraine to ultimately accede into the alliance. So once those were uh, uh, sort of ironed out and there were some last minute uh, sort of changes to the language, actually, um, it was the Polish delegation that decided to break the silence on the communique, which is what then basically uh, um, made the, the allies kind of have to do the 11th hour intervention because, again, NATO is an alliance operates on consensus. So unless everyone agrees to absolutely everything in the communique, right to the very last thought, nothing has been agreed upon. And you can imagine how this looks like in a room of 31 uh, countries uh, that span uh, the, the entire Euro-Atlantic uh, uh, area and uh, which will soon be now uh, extended to even 32. So uh, getting that consensus uh, is uh, obviously something that is a bit of a challenge, but they managed. They managed. And I think that, uh, again, the language, even though, again, Ukrainian government would have wanted uh, some uh, stronger uh, language there, I do think that in terms of the kind of cultural shift, this this discursive and, and rhetorical shift, we are way, way past the, the kind of Bucharest territory and, and this Vilnius statement is something that um, is a signal of strong commitment. Now, what can you tell us about the NATO-Ukraine Council? Um, has something like this been done before um, and what problems specifically will it seek to address? Absolutely. So, um as I already said, the, the one of the, the kind of manifestations of this very strong commitment to Ukraine is the creation uh, of the NATO-Ukraine Council. So NATO allies uh, in the communique uh, state clearly that they have decided to establish the council, which will basically give Ukraine a platform to sit together with the allies as an equal, um, rather than, you know, NATO plus one, it will be part of this permanent council um, where it uh, is able to discuss uh, all matters that regard its own security, but more broadly, Euro-Atlantic security. So um, Ukraine will be able to just as uh, an equal uh, be part of joint consultations, decision making, uh, different sorts of activities to be part of crisis uh, consultations. Uh, and similar. So all of the things that, you know, uh, just basically stopping short of membership. Um, and uh, you asked whether this has been done before. Uh, and interestingly, yes. And uh, with a country that is an aggressor that invaded uh, Ukraine. So Russia actually uh, was part of uh, uh, of the kind of first iteration of this format um, within the NATO-Russia Council, which built upon uh, this uh, founding act between NATO and Russia back in 1997. And this was back at the, the time uh, a way of reassuring Russia of, of actually engaging with it uh, to uh, say that, you know, we want you to be part of these discussions, that NATO alliance, even though it survived 
the the Cold War and and uh, is uh, well and truly having the post Cold War era that it's in a way uh, uh, meant to uh, um, be directed against Russia and you know for a while actually NATO Russia Council uh, operated rather well and. Uh, Russia had that seat uh, at the table again as an equal partner rather than meeting in a bilateral format of uh, what I already alluded to, that kind of NATO plus one, but uh, being there and being able to uh, uh, um, coordinate and, and put input on all matters of practical cooperation. Now, following Russia's uh, illegal annexation of Crimea back in 2014, uh, Alliance suspended all practical cooperation, uh, and basically, uh, since then we we haven't seen uh, any of of uh, that kind of activity that was envisaged back in the late '90s and that was formalized back in early 2000 um, uh, to to continue between the two. Huh. Such an interesting direction that that story has gone. Um, and so, I guess speaking of. Russia, as they've been um, the aggressor in this war with Ukraine. Obviously, this was a major focus of both the summit and the communique. Um, how hard would you say um, is NATO's posture on Russia? What are they willing to do and where do they draw the line? So um, now we are talking about the, the kind of concrete uh, uh, actions and, and commitments uh, when it comes to defense spending and military planning. And this is where I said in the uh, opening of the podcast, I, I think that there were some historic decisions made here, or at least pledges uh, for, for where NATO goes in the future. So um, if, um, you know, uh, listeners and, and especially the NATO nerds uh, among them recall uh 2014 was always referred to the Wales, the famous Wales summit following uh, Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea and the ensuing war in Donbas. Um, th there was that uh, summit uh, back in Wales where basically all allies have pledged that they would spend uh, up to 2% uh, of their GDP on uh, defense, right? Uh, and we know that in the nearly decade since, uh, not everyone has actually hit that mark. Uh, actually, more than half of NATO member states uh, are still below that threshold. So um, Vilnius is significant because it goes beyond Wales. Um, and basically, the Allies have now committed to invest at least 2% of GDP annually on defense. So making... Uh, 2%, not a kind of distant aspiration, but rather a floor, right? And this is a major change to where we were back uh, in in the years past, but also uh, getting us into the territory where for some countries, this will mean going back to basically the uh, Cold War era, to the, the kind of last decade of Cold War when some of them for the last time reached those sorts of figures, including some big ones, um, such as uh, Germany. So this is major, right? Uh, the, the fact that they are now committed to this and that really uh, we are seeing, you know, in terms of the forecasts, um, 
incredible trajectories to meeting that. Uh, just over the past year, NATO as an alliance in total uh, increased its uh, military spending. If you look at it that way, obviously, there is no common uh, military budget, right? But obviously, through all of the combined commitments, uh, a year change has been up uh, 8%, which is quite quite significant, right, just in a span of a year since um, Russia's invasion. And now uh, also allies have uh, uh, been talking about doing a lot more in terms of fulfilling uh, some uh, longstanding equipment requirements, right, the whole story of the uh, defense industrial base, you know, making sure that those sort of supply chains uh, are working, that uh, they are producing what needs to be produced uh, in terms of the capability targets, uh, because all of this is important for something else that was quite historic, and that is that NATO now has new defense plans and force models. And this might sound very dry, but I'll try to put it very briefly and, and kind of uh, uh, explain why this is a major thing. Uh, and this is uh, uh, this major change from the Vilnius summit, which means that NATO now, for the first time since the end of the Cold War, has revamped its defense plans uh, and endorsed uh, a new also defense production action plan. Uh, and what this means is that uh, now, uh, when you look at the map of the alliance, the alliance is divided into three regional plans which explains what every single one of the allies has to do, given the geography of these regions, to deter and to defend, which is obviously the core task of the alliance, uh, and to do that in all possible domains. So land, sea, air, but also space and cyber, so across five domains. And, um, you know, if you think about that geography, uh, NATO uh, has these three big plans, which uh, are all uh, divided to different command centers. So there is High North and the Atlantic, which will be commanded from Norfolk in U.S. There is a central regional plan, which uh, will be directed from Brussels, which covers uh, everything from the Baltics to the Alps. And then the third region, the southeast of the military alliance, which covers Mediterranean, the Black Sea, and that one is commanded out of Italy, out of Naples, actually. So <clears throat> all of this, uh, uh, the, the kind of changes uh, include specific instructions for each of the allies in terms of the commitment of troops, in terms of the commitment of equipment that needs to be on high re readiness and that needs to be integrated within this command and control structure. So I hope that no one fell asleep here, but I think this is really important because again, harking back to uh, the Wales summit, um, there were a lot of criticisms that back then that basically NATO was just trying to, you know, respond rather than to be proactive about things, right? Uh, when it introduced these uh, different uh, types of, of new kind of high readiness troops that could be deployed easily and so on, the reinforcements on the eastern flank as a, as a response to Russia's revanchism and, and assertiveness, um, basically that none of this actually shook really the core of the defense planning within NATO. But now after Vilnius, uh, those things will change. Wow. And I, I mean, that does seem like a very significant step change, a much more forward-leaning, forward-thinking 
posture um, regarding things. I think that is very significant coming out of this um, summit. And I guess it's just interesting, you know, that it, whatever Russia's intentions were uh, in invading Ukraine, um, but now to see this significant response, not just by some of the member countries, but all of the member countries in NATO. And we've got new countries wanting to join NATO. Um, it's been quite a remarkable, I think, response that's all been triggered by those actions. Um, shifting away from Russia a bit, the People's Republic of China was also discussed in the communique, uh, both regarding their strengthening relationship with Russia, but also in terms of the broader coercion and threats. And I remember a webinar back in 2020 where you were talking about the sort of COVID aid that China was providing, but with strings attached and how Europe was particularly feeling the impact of that. So how has the relationship between Europe slash NATO and China changed since COVID? And what do they want to shift in this dynamic? Well, this is a great question. And I would say if we had just one sentence answer, um, the the kind of uh, shifts that we are seeing are certainly in the direction of more competition and where uh, we are seeing a lot more of the United States and various European counterparts. And, you know, if you talk uh, about European Union or you talk about individual states, um, you, you see a lot more of uh, eye-to-eye and uh, shared uh, diagnosis between the U.S. and uh, various European uh, counterparts. So that's basically the, the kind of very uh, sort of 10,000 feet uh, sort of view on, on things. Uh, but I did come actually very prepared for this particular question. Um, uh, in terms of uh, how NATO sees uh, China these days, and if you indulge me just for one uh, uh, brief second, in terms of the past uh, three summits that NATO held from Brussels in 21, then Madrid last year and, and Vilnius this year, uh, just a, a very, you know, crude uh, sort of content analysis. Uh, in the Brussels communique um, back in 21, uh, China gets mentioned 10 times, and uh, this is when uh, when NATO talks about China uh, still open some of the uh, points about kind of maintaining a constructive dialogue with China. You know, uh, we welcome opportunities to engage with China, uh, work with it, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very, you know, uh, sort of still language, which obviously was cautious about China's intentions and actions. But uh, back in 21, still, there was a lot more of this urging China to engage in meaningful dialogues, in confidence building, transparency measures, etc., um, last year, um, the Madrid Declaration, it wasn't a, a communique because there was a strategic concept published, uh, China got mentioned again uh, 10 times in the strategic concept, once in the Madrid Declaration, but then fast forward to this year, China gets mentioned 15 times, which is a 50% increase, uh, and where uh, the kind of talk of, you know, uh, constructive dialogue and uh, similar sorts of things is very much kind of, you know, uh, something that uh, uh, gets mentioned in passing, but a lot more of the communique from Vilnius talks about 
the way that China's actions present a challenge to the alliance, and this builds on the strategic concept from last year, but not uh, just that, and, and, and you alluded to that already, already, there's a lot more of language on the Sino-Russian entente or partnership or this kind of no limit friendship and all that. Uh, and uh, really, we do see uh, uh, the kind of change in approach. So in that sense, uh, and again, having heard from people who are in NATO's policy planning uh, division and are, you know, uh, uh, really thinking uh, these things through at the level of the alliance, uh, they say that this is uh, really an obvious trend that uh, they don't uh, see is going to necessarily reverse in the coming years. And that obviously because of Ukraine, some of these things uh, have been made even more critical uh, in, in terms of obviously the need for the alliance to respond somehow. Um, and then obviously, again, as I said, if you if you think about the way uh, things have been moving around Europe, uh, I think the European Union, even though it tries to play kind of the uh, China, you know, as the kind of three in one, the shampoo conditioner and, and kind of, you know, treatment for split ends, you know, it's both a, a partner, a competitor and uh, also a rival. Uh, and it tries to do all of the things um, at, the, at the same time. Uh, but I think uh, over the especially past couple of months and, and you know, uh, uh, the, the kind of trips that we've seen uh, European Union officials take to China, uh, there's this language of de-risking, right, uh, that has replaced uh, the decoupling uh, sort of rhetoric, uh, where it's very clear that uh, basically uh, Europeans, but also I think the United States adopted this sort of language that um, there are certain areas where um, the transatlantic partners need to essentially uh, draw lines and that uh, they need to build resilience where they need to invest in their domestic capacities and capabilities, whether it's, you know, in production of some uh, critical uh, materials or supplies in terms of defense, uh, where basically uh, they don't want to uh, be left exposed uh, to China and uh, to, or to Chinese government. Uh, wins. So uh, I think that uh, in that sense, uh, NATO's communique and uh, the recent actions are basically moving uh, in the direction of seeing more comp competition ahead, but again, not just uh, trying to react to it, to try to be proactive about it as well. Mm, and I like the I like that analysis that you've done, that there's the 50% increase in the mentions of China. Uh, and it, it, I think that broadening global focus is, is a trend that we have seen, and especially in the strategic concept last year, that was a, a big focus. Um, and it kind of leads me to my next question, because Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was invited to the NATO summit for a second year in a row. Um, and you yourself have been traveling back to Europe and working with NATO basically every year since 2021. Clearly, this is a choice by NATO to strengthen the ties outside of the traditional treaty partners. So why do you think they're moving to this broader global focus? What are they hoping for from Australia? And what does Australia gain from being involved in this partnership? So I'd, I'd probably uh, paraphrase George Orwell somewhat here, where, uh, you know, I, I think 
probably NATO HQ people wouldn't like to to put it this way, but um, NATO thinks uh, all of its partners are great, but I think some partners are greater than others, right? <laughs> um, and um, I think that uh, this really goes to uh, the group that was uh, once upon a time referred to as the AP4, the Asia Pacific 4, which Australia is part of together with New Zealand, Japan and uh, Republic of Korea. Um, these days, they are more often referred to as the Indo-Pacific partners, uh, some call it also the IP4, but uh, in any case, um, this group uh, of countries is one that uh, has been identified as particularly important for NATO, given, again, what we've just talked about, uh, given that NATO has identified chi China as a major challenge, uh, again, not a threat, but a major uh, security challenge um, in uh, the strategic concept in other uh, documents. And obviously working with these partners uh, hail from the same region, basically, uh, where where China is most active, obviously, where uh, its uh, activities uh, are most obvious, but obviously not, not just contained uh, and in, in, uh, in, in, um, not just uh, limited to this particular region, um, that uh, NATO feels that it has a lot to learn from these partners, but also that it has uh, a lot to uh, benefit from, from uh, essentially pooling resources on a number of fronts, uh, given that, uh, if anything, the uh, war in Ukraine, uh, Russia's aggression showed how interrelated security around the world is, right? How military aggression in one country can directly have an impact on things um, that relate to security, whether you're talking about energy security, um, food security, uh, whether you're talking about different types of hybrid threats that might emanate um, and, and, and uh, actually eventuate in other parts of the, the world. So um, with this sort of recognition that security issues are global and are interrelated, even though NATO isn't necessarily a global alliance, but a regional alliance, uh, there is this need to collaborate with partners. And um, yes, you pointed out that I've been uh, working with NATO for the past couple of years, uh, that this was part of the NATO 2030 agenda that then basically informed the work on the strategic concept uh, and and everything that we've seen ever since, um, where it has been clear um, that NATO wants to do more uh, to, to build on the already existing relationships with the Indo-Pacific partners. And this is something that I really want to uh, stress that um, obviously these partnerships uh, are something that didn't just come from overnight, right? They've been there for now uh, two decades, uh, in some cases even longer than that. And uh, where NATO has worked with the, these countries uh, previously, uh, but mainly in order to provide security for non-NATO members in uh, some of the operations, which are best described as the kind of crisis management, right from the Balkans to Afghanistan and elsewhere. But these days, what we are really seeing is that these partnerships are now evolving into uh, a stage where they are recognized as important, not necessarily to provide security for a third party, but rather to enhance the defense and security of both the alliance and of the partner nations. 
And so, you know, again, in terms of if you want to be very practical about it, you know, sharing intelligence or sh sharing kind of knowledge and know-hows about, uh, for instance, the, the kind of malicious activities that might be undertaken by uh, adversarial nations could be one way that actually you defend yourself, right? Rather than think about, you know, sending troops um, into, again, uh, some country that's uh, uh, considered out of area, right, uh, in terms of defense of the alliance, as was the case uh, back in the, the 90s in the Balkans or, you know, in Afghanistan throughout 2000s and, and 2010s. So in, in that sense, uh, we are in a new territory. But I would say, um, again, even among these very special partners, Australia, together with Japan, uh, is uh much more integrated in terms of the, the ways that it works with uh, NATO. So Australia has already been part of uh, different exclusive groups within the kind of partnership. So um, as an enhanced opportunity partner, which made Australia highly interoperable with the alliance uh, and was part only of a small group of six partners that NATO has that were uh, interoperable, two of which now uh, are have either become a member state or are about to, so Finland and Sweden. So, you know, that's kind of now a club of war. Ukraine is another part of that. Um, and then uh, Australia has engaged with NATO in, in various uh, activities that pertain specifically to cyber, to emerging and uh, disruptive technologies, uh, to uh, different ways of countering uh, hybrid 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 threats. So uh, this is something that I think very much speaks also to uh, other initiatives that are, you know, complementary. If you think about AUKUS Pillar 2, for instance, this very much goes uh, in, in sort of areas and directions where Australia wants to boost its capabilities. And on some of these things, it's already worked with, with NATO. So uh, we all in all are seeing uh, NATO partnerships uh, with the Indo-Pacific partners pick up pace, they are deepening. Uh, but at the same time, again, uh, one final thing on this uh, is that this doesn't necessarily mean that NATO will now move assets into Indo-Pacific, nor does it suggest that, you know, Australia, Japan, or even Korea or, or uh, New Zealand will uh, in any way become some sort of permanent uh, feature of European security architecture. But it does show us that, obviously, uh, we will be seeing more coordination among a broader group of countries uh, that are uh, U.S. allies, but that are like-minded nations as well, uh, uh, liberal democracies uh, that, that obviously see a value in operating given the various security challenges they are facing. Mm, well, very interesting. Um, and I think that's probably a good um point to kind of wrap it up on but one thing I do want to check in on before um, I let you go is that as I mentioned at the beginning I'd be really keen to hear your by the numbers factor stat related to um, either NATO or the Vilnius summit what did you choose for us today Okay, this wasn't uh, easy because I've already tossed a lot of numbers out there. So I kind of blew, blew some of the ammo uh, to, to kind of uh, be very much within within the military uh, sort of lingo um, with, with all the increases and, and counts and, and all that. Uh -huh. um, but I actually chose, um, and if you'll indulge me, there are three 
ordinal numbers. Yep, go for uh, it. And they're first. <laughs> and we have first, third, and first. And I'll explain <laughs> wh why this is important. Um, they actually refer to Lithuania as the host country. And I think it's really important to uh, maybe stress something that we don't necessarily talk about, you know, at the U.S. Study Center or the uh, or Australia for that matter. Uh, Lithuania was actually the first country to uh, uh, claim independence from the Soviet Union back in 1990. And for uh, Lithuania, this uh, sort of... Uh, um, uh, the, the the kind of developments that have been going on, right, and and uh, the aggression that it's seeing, and uh, in particular the fact that uh, Russia uh, so blatantly uh, invaded Ukraine is something that for a lot of Lithuanians strikes very close to home, uh, given that they've also experienced violence uh, in, in their struggle for independence. And they were even, uh, you know, they, they came uh, and passed the threshold of um, uh, armed violence in the early 1991, where people died in Vilnius uh, fighting for uh, their independence. So uh, this is uh, the first one. And uh, it might explain then uh, why I chose the second ordinal number is the third, which is that uh, Lithuania is the third country uh, uh, in the world in terms of its GDP per capita uh, support or in terms of the aid uh, that it provides to Ukraine. The first and second are Estonia and Latvia. So these three Baltic countries in uh, GDP per capita measures are the top three contributors to Ukraine, right? They give over 1% of their GDP to Ukraine uh, in both military and non-military aid, followed by Poland and Slovakia. So all of the central and eastern or Baltic states there. Um, so uh, this is again very important because when uh, I was now in, in Lithuania, in Vilnius, uh, it's such a change of scene. I can't even uh, begin to describe how this war that is happening very close to the borders uh, of the Baltic countries uh, has just impacted, you know, the uh, everyday uh, sort of life and the psyche of, of people. You see so many Ukrainian flags. I've spent, you know, just uh, the past half a year in Germany. And of course, there is a lot of uh, showing the kind of public support for Ukraine. There are some flags. There are even, you know, graffiti in, in support, but also uh, against the war. But um, nothing that would compare to, to the number of flags that we've seen, um, Ukrainian flags, uh, in Vilnius, but also uh, open air exhi exhibitions that uh, speak to the need to to keep on supporting uh, Ukraine and how much uh, Lithuania is is giving uh, to Ukraine. So, uh, and and this uh, will bring me now to one final uh, ordinal number, and that is that uh, Lithuania was actually the first country to leave uh, the uh, seventeen plus one. Format, which was uh, China's format of cooperation with mostly Eastern European countries, stretching all the way from the Baltics down to the Black Sea and the Balkans. Um, and Lithuania is uh, actually at the forefront uh, of uh, the, the kind of efforts to basically uh, counter uh, different types of Chinese uh, 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 incursions and, and activities that are related 
uh, to Taiwan, so much so that it has been uh, sanctioned uh, by uh, China and uh, it has had uh, different uh, types of um, uh, trade restrictions imposed uh, and, and uh, trade war actually with China, something that, you know, uh, listeners from Australia can very much relate to. Uh, but uh, that uh, in, in this sense, and it just published its Indo-Pacific strategy, again, Lithuania, a country of 2.7 million people uh, uh, up in the Baltics. Um, and, and in this sense, it's very much the kind of first, one of the first movers within the European Union, uh, making itself uh, very much aligned with the United States and its outlook um, uh, to the Indo-Pacific. So I uh, think in that sense, you know, it's uh, just, you know, again, for, for a country we don't necessarily talk about a lot in terms of the, the kind of diplomatic um, and also very much real sort of impact, economic, uh, military. Uh, I, I think uh, those are some of the stats that would be worth mentioning. Uh, and more broadly, they speak to the fact that uh, once uh, this war in Ukraine ends, we will have um, Central and Eastern Europe um, that is much, much different to uh, where where things, you know, uh, stood before 2022, but also before even uh, 2014. And uh, these are in terms of, you know, what we study as transatlanticists, as uh, U.S. Study Center, uh, these are definitely uh, the most pro-NATO countries and some of uh, U.S.'s staunchest supporters uh, in Europe. And I definitely think that even with President Biden uh, giving that speech um, just a couple of days ago at the close of the summit in Vilnius on how the United States uh, looks uh, at these allies. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I definitely learned a fair bit. So thank you for highlighting that for us, because I think that will be new news for most of our audience and very interesting and gives added significance to the summit in Lithuania this year. So thank you so much for joining us today. I always enjoy talking to you, Garana, but I must say that I'm jealous that you got to be in the room for the summit. But if I can't be there, I think this is the next best thing. And as we wrap up, I'd just like to point out a couple of other podcasts that may be of interest. So we have our Technology and Security podcast, TS, run by Dr. Mia Hammond-Airy, USSC's Director of Emerging Technology, as well as our USSC Live series that runs recordings from our major live events. So recent episodes include a readout from White House National Security Council staff, Kirk Campbell, Edgar Kagan, and Mira Rapp-Hooper, and our interview with Qantas CEO, Ellen Joyce, and former U.S. Ambassador, John Barry, as well as our researcher responses to the AUKUS report. So you can find these on our website, ussc.edu.au, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll also give a plug for something Garana has kindly written up for us following the NATO summit. It's our latest USSC Insights piece, giving her takeaways on three key questions. You can also find that on our website. Thanks again, Garana. Always great talking to you. Thank you for making the time. And I hope to see you back in Australia soon. It's been a pleasure and see you very soon.